podcast. I'm John Cruz with me always. Chris Funderburg. Hi, John. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. Thank you. It's been a, been a fun summer. Here in our exciting new offices in Long Island City, where <laughs> we're recording from for this evening, where there's other people in the audience. Office where I was not expecting it. Um, what are we talking about tonight? So, uh, yeah, July 2019. Everyone is a buzz about a certain fictionalized version of the Charlie Manson murders from 1969, right? L.A. 1969, the Tate LaBianca killings. And the seedy underside of Hollywood, a beautiful actress caught in a web of murder. I mean, is there any... Hot film producer. We wanted to get right on top of this and talk about Columbo, the Helter Skelter murders. What other possible thing could we be discussing? There's no other choice. Uh, John... I want to thank you for bringing this book to my attention before we dive into everything. It's lovely that this book is now a part of my life. How do you want to tackle this? This book, I feel like there's so many different directions and so many different ways to go from what we normally do on an episode. So do you, are we just going to start with the uh, aperitifs, or do you want to go through the plot of this book a little bit? Oh, no, let me your aperitifs first. I, mean, I, think, I feel like we should establish what this is, though. I mean, this book yes. is a spin-off novel of the television show Columbo starring Peter Falk, which neither of us were new at all. Yes, I had literally never seen an episode and not realized it until this was suggested. It's just one of those pop cultural things that you you know. You know yeah. Peter Falk in the trench coat. And, the, uh, the rumpled. Right, doing with the must hair. pockets and the cigar. Yeah. You know all about it, but you don't realize until you actually sit down and think, I've never seen an episode of yeah. show. Maybe not, maybe not you, maybe not second person, but certainly me and John, I don't think it had well, occurred I to us. you. Oh, me literally, about. yes. Yes. Until I had sat down, yeah. I don't think I had thought about it at all. It no. seemed like a, uh, a strange... Thing not to have seen and I'm sure I've seen parts of them or something but I don't watch TV much TV and I certainly don't watch procedurals like I'm not a police procedural fan in that way so well, it wouldn't occur to me I was with Colombo I didn't realize he was a cop I thought he was a private eye going yeah I really didn't know anything about him the biography of the character at all I don't even think I had thought about him enough to have addressed that question if you had said is he a cop or a private eye I would have gone huh to that and I wouldn't have known either way uh, I don't think I don't know I mean it's weird too because for me Peter Falk is like a Cassavetes guy mm-hmm. I don't think of him as like a novelty TV actor on a long running show I think of him as like a weirdo untamable beast of an actor with a crazy group of guys who embodied a certain like free spirited artistic misogynistic sense of the 60s you know you know the bohemian Peter Falk, not the yeah the mainstream Falk. Yeah, I know like the whiskey drinking, crying on the street, yelling at the moon, Peter Falk. Isn't that <laughs> the Fred Savage's grandfather, Peter Falk? I guess I knew him from that too. I guess I would have thought of that if you had pressed me for my top forty-five Peter Falk roles. Mm-hmm. Princess Bride, I would have named fairly quickly. Yeah, on that. I so, but uh, yeah, point is. We may have, may have glim- both of us may have glimpsed uh, parts of a Columbo episode in the doctor's office, but never sat down and thought, I'm going to watch Columbo right now. Yes, and it belongs to a certain generation of TV shows where that's like the shit like older people liked when I was a kid, the sort of like Matlock murder she wrote type of shows when I was like, you know, like 
young guy and then teenager and stuff. Those are those are the shows. It was like an old people show, is yeah. what I thought of sure, it. Sure, sure, it, Probably on during the day while we were in school and things like that. Absolutely. That um, seems perfect. But th- so that's one angle going into this book, is that this is our introduction to... Columbo. Lieutenant Columbo, right, for the first time. A lot of people know Columbo, we don't. The other... Th- How about this? I can't remember what his first name is right now. He doesn't have one. Oh. Yeah. I was about to say Lieutenant Frank Columbo, and I was like, wait, what is I this? I looked it up name? afterwards. They do not reveal it ever on the show. Interesting. Like, I'm, And I'm willing to bet, based on this book, Mrs. Columbo is frequently referred to but never seen. That would be the idea, but there was a spinoff show called Mrs. Columbo. Oh, my God. Kate Milgrove. Did you know that? I would describe her as more athletic than a Playboy model and probably a good bowler. That fits with the description of her in this book. That's definitely the impression we get from this. What does he say? Does he say more athletic? What is the build? There's an exact phrase to describe her that's like huskier or something. Right, because he's given free lingerie, expensive lingerie to give yeah. to his wife. And his, his description of her is politely insensitive, yeah. I would yeah. say. It's like, what are you thinking? Me and my wife, we're old people. She's big fat, so we bowl. <laughs> Is his response to that. And that's book we should add from this book too. This book is from ninety-four or ninety-five. Yeah, right? this is from a string of books, and the author is William Harrington, is that right? Yes, William Harrington. William Harrington, who wrote a few of these, and apparently he had an idea to integrate Colombo with real life crimes because the first one he wrote uh, had something to do with the Kennedy assassination, uh, conspiracy. Columbo and the Grassy Knoll is what it's called. Tantalizingly advertised on the back. A wonderful tale full of spectacular twists and stunning surprises. But we can't attest to that because we read The Helder Skelter Murders. Yes. Which we should describe. The cover has a illustration of Manson's famous mugshot and the famous shot of Sharon Tate that uh, comes up in, you know, is in the middle of it. It's in Bugliosi's book and was all over the papers when the murders happened. So the cover is definitely leading you to believe this is going to be Lieutenant Columbo solving the Tate LaBianca killings. Yes, or the Helter Skelter murders. Exactly. I'm willing to bet that the grassy knoll referred to in the JFK one is, based on the experience with this book, is like in fucking Chicago. Yeah. Based on my experience with this, which is, I guess we don't want to spoil it right away before we die. Well, then. we're on grassy knoll, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, I went to see JFK. Yes. Oliver Stone's JFK in 1991, yeah. thinking it was going to be a biopic bio of JFK yeah. with Kevin Costner playing yeah. Kennedy, only to find out, oh... Yeah. It's something else entirely. And I imagine... I, it's, I, about, I, it's about the gay party scene cabal committing sex murders. It's, it's about Michael Rooker having it up to here with his crazy DA boss. <laughs> Can I tell you, it makes me so sad when I think about millennials and how little they know about history. Like, if you said to a millennial, JFK, blown away. Like, they don't know what comes next. You know what I mean? Like, they're not going to automatically fill that in but in their heads. they will accidentally say, what do you want me to say? Like, yeah, that's close. That's it's so, so close. Almost it's, there. It's so close. Hit the books, kid. <laughs> Hit the books and you might learn something. Look up under Joel, comma, William. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think my reaction to this book was similar. As you called it, a bait and switch. I yes. Swear convince you that it's going to be taking place in 1969 and that real life when the summer of love becomes the summer of murder <laughs> when real life things are happening what a tasteless thing did that would have been to do to have a fictionalized characters running around 
in a real crime scenario. Yeah, you'd have to be a real asshole to think this is a fun thing to do, to have your fictionalized characters hanging around the Tate LaBianca murders. I mean, what? A shithead. Who would do such a thing? Yeah, and clearly not William Harrington, who's a class act all the way. Because in this book, Columbo basically solves the Tate LaBianca crimes within the first 10 pages. Yeah, no, when you open this book, let's do our aperitifs before we dive uh, uh, too far in. But reading that first chapter, I was like, huh, they're really... uh, they're really breezing through this. Oh, they've already found the bodies. Now they found the Manson family. Looks like they're going to be wrapping this up in the first chapter. I, I guess it's going to flash back? He's very careful to not give Columbo any really serious things, like he's the one who discovered the Spawn Ranch or anything. It's yeah. like he interviewed a few subject, suspects, and uh, he drove a few people downtown. You know, he was basically doing the footwork. He was not the man who, you know, cracked the case wide open or anything like that. Yeah, so you think it's going to be something that it's not. Right, he's basically just setting up that he's familiar with the case, he has met Manson before, he knows the Helter Skelter murders. Helter Skelter. So let me ask you, John, let's do our aperitifs, and I'm going to go first, if only because, uh... If only because I um, don't want you to get to it first. Uh, My aperitif, which you absolutely must read just as a book, whether you're interested in this movie or not, it is the quintessential work of true crime. It's one of the most essential reads, and that is Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter. Uh, It is the book, when I was a kid... Helter Skelter was introduced to me by my mom when because she's like a, she's a nonfiction writer and she has an interest in true crime. When I was like 15, she was like, "Oh, there's this great book you should read. It's so upsetting." And it like she because she was obsessed with she would always talk about the way the Manson family would break into people's houses and just watch them sleep, not commit any crimes, but they were always just breaking into places and watching people sleep. She's like, "Oh man, it gave me nightmares." Here, kid, read this. And I read it, and it was formative. It got me interested in true crime, which, you know, we can talk about the ethics of true crime at this point. To me, true crime was interesting when it's something like weirdos and outsiders are into, that it should innately be something that's an antisocial interest. And now that it's been turned into an like entertainment industrial complex, there's something unseemly about what's become of like all of the amateur online crime buffs and sleuths uh, and all of that sort of thing, which I think up until recently I would have counted myself as a member of, but it just it just feels like something weird has shifted in the past few years with that. But if you're interested in true crime, this is like the essential read of true crime. This is the most important one, and it's The Lawyer. Again, it's a book I know so much about and for so long that I forget to say The Lawyer, who convicted the Manson family, most notably Charles Manson, is Vincent Bugliosi. And, you know, it's fascinating because Bugliosi is an incredible lawyer. And in retrospect, having learned more about the Manson crimes and what happened, it's fascinating to see how he builds a case against Charles Manson, which to this day, I'm 
This is not an original position, but it's one that I really believe in, which was that Charles Tex Watson was the driving force of those murders. And if he doesn't have a drug-induced psychotic break, I don't think they happen. I think Charles Manson is like a pathetic con artist. I think he's an L. Ron Hubbard type, right? I totally agree. I think a lot of people think of Manson as this, you know, cult psycho who really believed all these, you know, prophetic things that he was telling yeah. people and really wanted to start like a revolution that would end the world and he would become yeah. the king. He was a pusher and a pimp who basically used suggestible young women as currency yeah. to like, you know, get into like celebrity places and get into stay at a place for several months until he wore out his welcome. Basically yeah. all he had going for him was that he had these young women willing to jump in the sack with whoever. And some, and it's also weird, he has some modicum of talent. That's, again, I compare him to L. Ron Hubbard, where mm. he has some modicum of talent that it's not unreasonable that these people that were around him, like Melcher and the, the Dennis Wilson and that, kind of could almost talk himself into it. And he has a very... He's like a knockoff Bob Dylan, too, in terms of the way he phrases things and his sort of enigmatic way of speaking and ironic detachment to things that he sells this very, like, idiot, hippie beatnik philosophy that was, like, popularized by Bob Dylan, this sort of, like, moronic philosophical doublespeak he's very well versed in. And, um, and so it's easy to see how he got into places. He's not completely talentless you know mm-hmm. have you ever heard the audio of him when they're trying to record the demo and it's him with the girls in the booth with him and the audio engineer is just like can you get them to shut the fuck up and get out of the booth but it's exactly what you're saying where it's like he's in the booth because he has these like adoring young women following him everywhere right so he tracks these adoring young women and also a dangerous element obviously because yeah. they're homeless and they're yeah. drug they're in all the drugs yeah so he's going to collect Tex Watsons and Bobby Beausoleil's who will actually murder people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole Tate LaBianca murders essentially was a cover was was conceived as a cover up because Bobby Beausoleil, who yeah. was one of the group members, murders a, a musician named Gary Hinman, who they were trying to torture into giving them a giant inheritance that they had heard he had gotten. Yeah. Um, Which and, of course didn't exist. And Manson's you know involvement in this was even questionable. I mean, he basically you know yeah. wanted to go get the money. And then as he left, he told, after they had been, you know, beating him up, being tied to a chair and beating him up, he told Bobby Beausoleil, take care of it, and left. And then Bobby Beausoleil on, himself, on his own murdered Gary Hinman, and then was caught the next day, like, in the car with the murder weapon, you know? Yeah. And so the idea was, well, we're going to create a similar murder. Bobby Beausoleil had uh, used Gary Hinman's blood to write messages on the wall, so they are going to go and kill high-profile people, Sharon Tate and her friends. Yes. So the police would think we got the wrong guy and Beausoleil would get out of jail. Yeah. I totally believe what you're saying that Manson came up with this idea. But yeah. I agree that without the force of someone like who's seriously a dangerous person like Tex Watson, yeah. it doesn't happen. He also, I think Tex Watson believed, and I think at that point where Manson was, everybody thought he was going to be a star and he talked a big game about his music career and he was introducing them to like these important people, right? And that was all starting to stall out and people were losing interest. And I think Manson knew that. So when Charles Tex Watson, they had made this tea with a hallucinogenic root in it, right? And all drank the tea. And then Charles Tex Watson ate the fucking root, which you're not supposed to do. And he like disappeared into the desert for like a week. And when he came back, 
back. He was like, it's time to commit these fucking murders. It's time to start the race war. It's time to make all of this insane shit happen. And I think Manson had reached the put up or shut up point where that he was just out of control of that train too. You know, it's like, this is all going to come falling down, you know, unless it escalates, you know, but to the idea that he was in control of everything, I think is ludicrous. And it's fascinating to see Bugliosi build that case and build that idea, which I think is fundamentally dishonest. I think Manson was a shithead who deserved to be in prison. He was like a career criminal, you know, by the time he's, you know, in his early 20s, he's spent barely any of his life outside of prison, you know, but it's not like he was hot, some hot shit in prison. He was a short guy and had been like always a victim in there and, you know, was like a chronic bedwetter into adulthood and stuff and I think that just the idea of him a lot of that is of course created by the media at the time who love the courtroom antics of these people and who love their strong desire to be celebrities and willing to be exploited in a certain way and he was certainly good at playing to the cameras but it's Bugliosi with with Helter Skelter that really builds this idea on how we're going to nail him for crimes he didn't literally commit which says so much about Bugliosi because he doesn't build he doesn't big himself up in the book at all yeah you just kind of appreciate the process well, the narrative that he has to create to yeah. convict a man who did not murder anybody himself yes he did not do any of these killings got other people to do it for him and it's astounding vaguely didn't even he wasn't even giving concrete commands a yeah. lot of the time like you say is yeah. that he was issuing like very vague missives about everything but was definitely not even in the room when these murders yes. were happening yeah that i mean there was tex watson who shot Stephen Roparent to death yeah and who did most of the uh, the stabbing stabbing yeah inside of the house in silo drive so we just think about that for a minute what Bugliosi was able to do to get Manson the death penalty yeah. for not actually killing anyone? Yes. It's genius. Yes. And it's and it's a very compelling book. And to this day, like a lot of great crime fiction, it's these like weird asides and unresolvable elements and little things I think about all the time. Like they had thrown the murder weapon out of a car when they were driving away and a little boy found it on like a hillside and he picked it up by its uh, trigger guard with a pencil so that he wouldn't smudge fingerprints on it, right? Because he had seen a TV detective do it and then a beat cop or whoever came along and he gave it to him and that cop immediately handled the gun and ruined the prints and Bugliosi like rails against this cop and like praises the kid and there's all these funny asides like that in it or like the weird story about Roman Polanski successfully beating a lie detector test for no reason and it gives you a really I feel like more than anything the insights I got into Polanski from this book you know it's the most valuable book ever written about Roman Polanski in some ways you know regardless of what your feelings are about you know an admitted rapist who escaped justice in the United States it's fine to feel bad about him but he's also an incredibly uh, interesting artist and compelling figure who's a very mysterious in a lot of ways and went through incredibly uh, event-packed life, a certain tragic and traumatic, and also uh, uh, he also impacted people with tragedies and traumas as well. And the picture you get of him in this book, in just a few brief things, is so strange and so uh, like compelling, especially knowing that his wife was just murdered. Why is he trying to fool the police? These kind of things, you know, are so strange, you know. 
I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who played Manson in the TV movie. Rails Back. Yes. I was going to say, see, the, read the book. Don't just see the Rails Back movie. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> check out the book. Uh, my aperitif is going to be um, a certain Bob Clark movie. I wonder if you can guess. Uh, no, I it's can't. Not, it's not Porky's the Next Day. It's, what? It's Murder by Decree. Oh, whoa. I would not have Third guessed. Reason. Canadian film from 1979 for the simple reason that it is a Sherlock Holmes movie where Sherlock Holmes is investigating the Jack the Ripper murders. And it's a fun film that uses a lot of the popular uh, conspiracy theories involving you know, the Freemasons and uh, the Royal Doctor and uh, the psychic that you know Al Moore brings back in From Hell. Um, but it's a good movie. It's Christopher Plummer playing Holmes, not for the first time, and James Mason playing Watson. So right there, you know, you're in for a fun time. But has sort of a similar idea, I think, when taking a beloved fictional detective and putting him in a real, a horrendous real-life murder case um, that makes sense for him to be in. Because one thing I didn't know about Columbo, at, you know, again, for, biographically as a character, is that he's a New York detective who moves to California as part of the angle, right, yeah. of the show, is that they, they used to be transported to sunny California, but he's this gruff... New York cop who wears his raincoat everywhere, even in the hot summer. And is uh, constantly marveling at Holly Weird. Right, is completely foreign in this already very strange environment, but like yeah. a down-to-earth kind of guy. Yeah, loves a bowl of chili, is what I'm learning about him. Yeah, we learned, we got all the tropes in this attorney. I, I should say, John, here's an honest question for you. Are you and I now the world's biggest Columbo superfans that have never seen an episode. <laughs> I, I saw my first episode yesterday. Oh, really? This book, yeah. Reading this book. This one called Exercise and Fatality. It takes place in a health club. Oh, I knew it. I couldn't wait. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. I loved yeah. Peter Falk in it. And it was great to see, like I said, some of these tropes that we would learn from this book coming out in Peter Falk. Yeah. Does a hand gesture from his head when he says, oh, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. Oh, when the criminal tries to say, well, this explains that crazy theory you have. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. Like, there's a little yeah. gesture with his head. One more thing. <laughs> That's what I couldn't believe in this book, is how many times he does the Columbo things that are famous for the, just one more thing. I'm turning it over in my head, and it's bothering me. You know, yeah. that is amazing in the book. And it's actually the first time he says, one more thing. I was like, oh, my God, there it is. The fifth time I was like, ease up on it, Harrington. No, he literally does it to every single character. Yeah, ease up on that. Even if you there's know? no reason for him to throw that character off, <laughs> yeah. he still comes back with, oh, it's just one more thing. I want yeah. to ask Yeah. Um, and what I'm learning I is you have know. an A-plus Peter Falk is what is I'm it? learning. <laughs> uh, I was going for a C-plus, but it's all right. Um, I'm going to realize that the angle of the show, which is great, yeah. is that you see the crime happen, you see the murder, you see exactly how they do it. You know who the yeah. murderer is, and the episode is not a mystery like yeah. she wrote. It's Columbo you know, poking holes in, yeah. these, in these alibis. It's the thrill of finding out how he's going to nab these guys. We have all the facts, but we need to see Columbo find a way to prove it. Yeah, and in general, I find the mystery structure unsatisfying. I find that the exposition dumps that have to happen at the end of mysteries 
to be a terrible structure for stories. In general, I think the mystery genre is bad. That's one of the things that fascinated me so much about how much I liked this book and enjoyed it. And this book is not a great book. This is an enjoyable book, you know? Exactly. If you enjoy an episode of Columbo or Murder, She Wrote, you will enjoy this book, right? It's very quick read. But the the thing I don't like, the mystery genre very much, I especially hate the locked room clever solution mysteries are the worst. I think that a lot of the times, one of the problems I have with like Raymond Chandler, that's an author I'm not very fond of, is just the convoluted process of trying to create red herrings, trying to throw the audience off the scent, uh, and then the big exposition dumps that happen when they get everybody together in a room and Hercule Poirot walks them through what happened and all of that sort of thing. And this is a great way to do it where you can dump all of that. You can get rid of all that shit because we know what it did and it's fascinating to see him working through it, him exploring all the angles and then coming to a conclusion and you get there at the end and it doesn't feel like, okay, did you all write down your test answers? Now compare them to the real thing, you know, kind of thing. Exactly. It also kind of gives you kind of that dual pleasure where you you want Columbia to bust these guys, obviously yeah. these liars and, and murderers and thieves. But at the same time, you know, you're kind of watching them sweat as Columbo's getting closer and closer yeah. to the truth. And it's fun to watch them, you know. Yeah. And kind of like, you, you kind of experience this crime with them. You're kind of like on, not on their side, but you kind of can sympathize in a certain way. Yeah. Where you want to see like, oh, are they going to get away with it or not? <laughs> yeah. And there's like these, these like, there's like a shambling, ambling rhythm to this book where... He goes to the beach with his dog, and there's like a sequence about him, the dog chasing around seagulls and barking at the uh, the waves and stuff. And if that was a mystery novel, like if that was Simonon, who sometimes late Magrette books will like describe a dinner and you're like, fucking get on with it. You know what I mean? Like, like this book, because you know where it's going, these asides where he's sort of bullshitting with people and playing pool or like talking to the hot dog guy a little bit. You know, these are really, like, they end up becoming interesting character pieces. And the things that, the way it sort of ambles along, like uh, Columbo himself, who's like a, a sort of mess of a human being with an office in his pockets and things like that. It's, it's, it gives the book a good rhythm. It gives the story a good rhythm mm. in that way. And the other genre I'm not into is I don't like procedurals. And I have a tendency to not like, I said this on the Glitter Dome episode, I don't like books about cops. That's one of the interesting things about Bugliosi's book, The Helter Skelter, uh, uh, itself is in most true crime, if you read enough true crime, cases don't get solved by clever police work. Cases get solved because somebody confesses and give them the answer and then the detectives assemble the evidence to put them away, you know? And most cops are kind of fuck-ups and most cops are kind of idiots. And that's like the Glitter Dome, I feel like, gives a realistic depiction of police in that way and that it's like sort of moral mayhem within these things. And so books that are about like diligent police officers and especially TV shows and movies, I, I don't, it just, it always feels fake to me. It always feels like I'm being led, fed this sort of like authoritarian load of shit about the intelligence and nobility of all of this. Whereas like, it's a line of work like any other work and a lot of police officers are hardworking, decent people, but the nature of investigating crime is messier than all of that. It's more complicated than all of that. And there's not you so rarely encounter like phenomenal police officers in true crime that when a Bill Stoner comes along, you're like, you want to fucking paint a mural of him. You know what I mean? In my dark places. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's another thing that why 
putting Columbo in the actual Tate LaBianca murders would never work because you're never going to convince anyone that there was this one guy who came in yeah. and saw all the angles and figured everything Except out. it's Bugliosi a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, that's you yeah. know, different. Yeah, yeah. Talking about as a Post facto. I yeah. mean, we know, you know how it all happened where, you know, they were busted yeah. at uh, the ranch for... The Spawn Ranch. Car yes. Something like that. And so... And it wasn't because it wasn't until Susan Atkins confessed in, yeah. in prison that you know they actually figured out that these guys were involved. So yes. we know it wasn't like crack police work. And as you were just saying, you know, a freaking cop mishandled the gun right away. You know, that's yeah. usually what it is. It's messy, like you said. It's messy, and even on the criminal side, it's messy too. Like they they um, took the uh, the wallet from one of the victims. I believe it was the Tony LaBianca that they took his wallet and drove it to a black part of town and hid it with the idea that it would be found and start the race war theoretically but they put it in the top of a toilet tank and it was never found until they told police where it was and it was still there like 18 months later or whatever just jammed in this toilet because <laughs> who's going to take the toilet lid off of a toilet in a gas station bathroom in a horrible part of town you know like yeah. of course it's not going to be found throw it on the ground somewhere but even that stuff the sort of way incompetence plays out is fascinating but or that's first responders who you know smudge the bloody fingerprints you know? exactly yeah, just... who track uh, uh, shoe prints everywhere right you know? it's just it's hard to maintain a crime scene yes very hard to maintain a crime scene especially one as chaotic and, mm -hmm. and big as as like the Manson murder crime scenes where the Tate LaBianca murders mm -hmm. were and, um, and again this is not like I don't even mean it as a criticism of police officers I mean it just like the way police police work is done is literally the opposite of the way it's usually depicted where they have a solution and then acquire evidence to make that solution prosecutable right right and so there's something about this where that's the process of this book where we know the answer and it's sort of him accumulating the evidence to make it prosecutable right yes, exactly. and to just dig into the plot of this book a little bit you want to dive into that sure. to just give yes, it a setup let's do that so this is actually takes place 25 years after the famous Manson killings. and 25 years to the day. And what we have here are Manson followers, or at least one of them was, you know, a man, part of the Manson group. She works at a, uh, what is it, a high-end, like... It's like a high-end department store. It's yeah. like a Neiman Marcus, what it would have been in the 80s or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, um, like but, a fancy, almost... It, there's a few things, details in this book that I would say are a little off. And one of them is the depiction of this, like, uh, everything boutique. You know, it's in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. It's They sell everything from, like, sharper image type gadgets to Victoria's Secret type underwear to, like, jewelry and clothes and shit. So it's a little bit of a department store. But the idea is that it's, like, like Fred Siegel, but a department store instead of just a clothing shop. You know right. what I mean? It's, like, an iconic Los Angeles location in the book so we've got Puss Do Good right, is this, her, her Manson name yes um, she was known as uh, Puss Do Good back when she was with, running with Manson yeah. she's now just a person she's working as a secretary at this place uh, which is run by this guy Joe Corey who yeah. is you know Yusef Corey who loves the, loves the finer things that's why he runs this store right and he has a beautiful car and a gull-winged Mercedes. <laughs> if you would like to read the phrase gull-winged Mercedes, this is the book for you. Yes, very entitled fellow. He's in a um, a bad marriage where he and his wife are both, I don't even say bad marriage, but they both they both have different partners. They it both, seems they like both, an actually functioning marriage. Functioning they're both cheating on each other with younger, more attractive in the, people. In the open. Yeah. Um, but 
he is also a movie producer and he's having some financial problems because he tried to make an arty movie that uh, did that tank did not do well. Won some Academy Awards and the critics loved it, but audiences stayed away. <laughs> What's the name of the movie? Do you remember? Lingering Memories. Lingering Memories is that one? Lingering means? Memories. This is another thing that these movies are not called what they would actually be called in life. Like <laughs> Joel and Lingering Memories. And there's the two space movies. What are those called? It's like Forbidden Galaxy or something. Right. Like every those I could see being like yeah. you know at the time like yeah. early nineties like Galaxina like like Roger Corman like yeah. Battle Beyond the Stars type title yes so those those were more plausible but um, but anyway, there's not a movie called Lingering Memories that's winning Academy Awards no definitely not anytime they throw it it got nominated for best costume yeah it's like, oh, you should leave that detail out it's yeah but um, anyway because he decided to open his heart and make this amazing uh, arty film he is desperate for money and he also the woman that he is sleeping with is a beautiful talentless actress and professional beach volleyball player kimberly dana (laughs) and they conspire together to murder his wife yes and they decide since puss puss do good works for them as a secretary they are going to frame her by making it look like the manson killings like the tate labianca killings specifically by showing up late at night to his mansion and uh, dispatching her and her lover and production and, designer Stephen Heck and putting up uh, phrases like Hilter Skelter misspelled Hilter Skelter Helter Skelter like in the original murders it's spelled H-E-L H-E-A-L-T-E-R Hilter Skelter instead of the right thing and death to pigs and whatnot. yes and the idea is that the press seizes on this realizes immediately that Puss Do Good must have done this and goes to put them away but there's some inconsistencies that don't work for Columbo before we move on because we've said it a few times now don't you feel like the aspect of this movie that bothered me the most were the fake Manson names Puss Do Good Squatty Boobs Kid right they make a big deal out of like Manson bestowing nicknames on people which is interesting because two of the most famous nicknames I know Squeaky Frome and Tex Watson were actually given to them by George Spahn yes the the owner of Spahn Ranch because when he would goose uh, Lynette Frome she would squeak and so he called her Squeaky yes and because he was losing his sight he called Charles Watson Tex because he recognized his Texas accent so I don't even know if Charlie Manson was a big nickname giver in general yes and also all of the Manson nicknames Part of what sticks about them is they're legitimately fucking great. Like Squeaky Frome is impossibly memorable. Sadie you know, Mae Glutz. Sadie Mae Glutz. These are like, and that's funny too. Like Sadie Mae Glutz and Squeaky Frome, these are funny things, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's a humor to them. Puss, Puss, Puss Do Good is just not going to hack it. And Kid and, and boobs. Bum Rap. There's a guy named Bum Rap. They're so fucking whack. And I think that, that that shows, like, you have to have some sense of why Manson is, like, a media phenomenon. And it's, like, because that shit is all perfect. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's a weird thing to say, the grotesque media spectacle, all of it. And you go, of course, Squeaky From. Who, you hear Squeaky From once, and you will never forget it. You see a picture of her, and you're like... It just becomes an unforgettable image of everything. And Tex Watson, too. You know, you Tex is not the most original nickname, but Tex Watson is like a thunderously memorable name. Tex Watson, if there was a cowboy TV show starring Tex Watson, of course, perfect, print, we got it. 
you know, don't don't write any more names on the whiteboard, fellas. We got <laughs> we got them. You know. Yeah. Tex Watson, have gun, will travel. To to be fair, yes. A lot of the a lot of the members of this group, uh, yeah. plus this group, are were not around in the '60s when Manson was there, yeah. so they've been given nicknames by other people. But like, and yeah, and that are, are boobs and squatty even named by Manson? I think the implication is their names they gave themselves, but like boobs because she has big tits it's just like get out of my fucking face with this William Harrington yeah you William Harrington you go back to the whiteboard and you work on these a little harder you know uh, so there is one scene with Charles Manson where Columbo goes to visit Manson in, yes in prison to get the to the Hannibal Lecter scene exactly. it's the Hannibal Lecter exactly scene. there's even a quote on the book that says it's a scary silence of the lambs and obviously this coming out in what 94 was published yeah um, that idea even back backdraft the Ron Howard arson movie yeah. has a Hannibal Lecter character yeah Donald Sullivan's character that like they go to ask about fire you love the flames don't you that's why you're a fireman exactly everyone had to have the, the, the Hannibal Lecter scene where they go and yeah. they talk to a criminal prison so i think that's why it's in there it's really completely useless yeah. in terms of the investigation columbus already pretty much convinced that puss and her friends did not do this but i also think i think yes from the start he has questions i do think it's a very good depiction of charles manson though it reading is. it i was like yeah. this actually matches up with my experience of charles manson and columbo describes him as he's a nothing Right, and I think that's really true about Charles Manson. Is that the idea of him as like Spengali cult leader, maniac, godishly devilish? Yeah, he's the thing. short little asshole. Yeah, he's this dipshit who, when he shows up at your party, it's ruined, you know. And he shows up at every party somehow, you know. And you throw that guy in prison, and he's just some—he's some fodder for the rest of the real tough guys in prison and the real monsters in there. I agree; it's a good depiction. Although he does have the, like the line about. I hope they never let you out, Charlie. And it's yeah. like, well, if he is such a squatty little yeah. fuck nut, I mean, he's dead. why not? Yeah. Why not? Might as well just kick his ass. Well, I think just because Columbo's like, you're trash. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. so, Columbo doesn't cotton to that kind of thing, John. So there's a great scene where Columbo, we were talking about the small little scenes we Did get. we convey it? But so Yusef Curry and his model girlfriend, Kimberly Dana, conspire to murder his wife and Stephen Heck the woman she's sleeping with happens to also be in bed when they show up, and then they have to kill the houseboy as well, Sergio. Sergio. He stumbles upon it, and so they have to dispatch him as well. Yeah. And it should be said, Kim Dana is quite bloodthirsty. Yes. See. And they use a specialized weapon called a Bally Sing, which I had never heard of before. It's Ed, basically you? like a butterfly knife, right? It sounds, but it sounds huge, because mm -hmm. it says that the cuts are 16 inches apart. Yeah. Which means but that, the way like, they function with the handle that's, that pulls out and then the blade comes out from yeah. between the handles. It sounds, it, sound like it, sounds it makes it sound actually to me like hedge clipper type thing almost. Because they mm. describe it as having two blades, don't they? I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a fancy weapon. And of course, if there's one thing I have learned from true crime, don't use the fancy weapon for murder. Use the most anonymous weapon possible. Because if you use something as distinct as a bally sing to commit a murder, all those bally sings you've given to your friends as gifts will come back to haunt you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really what buries Joe on. Not, you know, not to rush to the end, but the fact that he's given one to every single person he knows yes. uh, is not a great idea. But I guess that's the kind of dumb thing that criminals do, right? Yes. And it's and these criminals are interesting too because they're they're bad but they're not detestable, right? 
one of the things I like about them is they're just kind of standard variety assholes. They're like TV show assholes. They're not like monstrously terrible, mm -hmm. you know? And their mistakes are kind of, uh, you know, Columbo calls them too smart. You know, I like the line he has at the end is when, like, if you were intent on pinning it on Puss Do Good, you should have left some work for us to do, mm -hmm. right? That yeah. you made them too perfect too of the suspects. Yeah. Right. And that, like, if you had just, you know, nothing ever points that clearly to anybody. Right, because it's revealed through Columbo's investigation that they set it up way in advance. They, one of the group members, plus his friends, you know, was given a job as a housekeeper to establish yeah. that somebody in her group knows the layout of the mansion and would have a key, maybe, or, like, a way in. Yeah. Um, Which I think it was that, that it was hinging on that. I kept thinking, like... Is the implication no one has ever committed a murder in an unfamiliar home? <laughs> Just yeah, like know the layout of the yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can go in and wander around. <laughs> or if you're a criminal, you can case it. Surely you've heard of casing a joint <laughs> right, Columbo. Right, like the, the Manson guys knew uh, the yeah. drive address. Well, they or did. They had been there. there. They'd been there, but, you know, yeah. still. Yeah. Um, I'm just so. saying, one more thing, Columbo. Haven't you ever heard of casing a joint? No, you're right. Um... And to further bury themselves, the killers, when they second guess, you know, when they're getting nervous, what they do is they select a piece of jewelry, very expensive jewelry, that uh, he'd given to that, Kimberly. That, that Joe, Joe had given Kimberly, Kimberly. And claimed that it was, that belonged to his wife and that it was stolen. Yeah. Uh, as a way to... A $48,000 piece of jewelry. Right, and it on the suspects. Yeah, to then put it with Puss Do Good, to pretend like she then mailed it to... Uh, to the store as a way of keeping it there. I think that's Kim Dana's big, Mist big mistake. Because as soon as she starts... Because like, Joe Curry says, throw it in the ocean, let it get out of here, insurance will pay for half, and she just can't she bear to throw this piece of jewelry away. She, she, wants it, she wants to keep it for herself. She wants it to be entered into police evidence and returned to, to her. Right, which was a bad move. Especially yes. because she very, she's cleverly, you know explaining how she manipulates the packaging to make it look like it was set on a certain date. And I just immediately thought, wow, you're not getting away with that. Yeah. No way are you like, switching a tag. I couldn't even tell, like, what does she want to do with There's the an old packaging thing, and I think it was like a manual set on it, and she right. just that sets it at the bus. going to be able to say, oh, somebody could have set this to a different date. Yeah. Yes. And she's very proud of herself for coming up with this yes they are but again that's the kind of like dumb mistake criminals actually make and there's nothing about um falk's falk Columbo's unraveling of this story that is questionable he puts this together in a very believable way and their own mistakes sort of draw them in there's no um he's not like a brilliant master detective when you sometimes read a sherlock holmes story or even a magret story that i love sometimes there are these wild leaps where you're like where the fuck did that insight mm -hmm. come from and there's none of that in this and there's in fact little details that you know he's noticing like oh she's wearing the purple shorts that the fisherman described that he doesn't even when he lays out his case, he doesn't even play them as trump cards. You know, they're just things in the back of his head that are pointing him in a direction that everything's sort of building like a wave. And then he just hits the big points that are going to bury them. Yeah. Uh, you appreciate that he burns the shoe leather. Like, he's really out there. He's talking to everybody. Yeah. He's uh, following him to the beach, so he knows he's diving around there for some reason. And then follows that up by going to the diving club, you know, to, like, ask questions about... Joe's diving habits, you know, and does he take a buddy out with him? Things that seem insignificant, but obviously can 
give you a you know a sketch of like what this guy why would this guy be going out by himself yeah can i ask you what were you you know i think we've conveyed it a little bit but did you have any vision of what this would be if it was actually falk walking around solving the manson murders and were you disappointed that's not what it was no i'm glad that's not what it was that's, yeah, I really, you know, there was like a little bit of like, let's see how tasteless this could be. Yes, I was this. like, I this is going to be a masterpiece of bad taste, yes. is what I thought. Is that Columbo looking at pregnant Sharon Tate's murdered body and being like, just one more thing, Charlie, you know, like... <laughs> I, I thought it was that was the selection was like I didn't I didn't think this would be a legitimately enjoyable book like the only way you get a little more taste is if like you had a comic book with the Manson murders and McGruff the crime dog or something yes exactly <laughs> exactly if like Hulk Hogan and the super friends were solving the Manson murders <laughs> yeah, exactly. like maybe don't do this guys um, which makes me which makes me worried because I was like I'd read another one of these oh is the Grassy Knoll actually going to solve the JFK murders? <laughs> is the Grassy Knoll actually going to be in poor taste? Or is it going to be like he's solving, you know, my guess it's going about Jack book, Ruby. Yeah, my, my, my guess based on this book is it's like a conspiracy, like a nut, you know? Yeah. Who has all these ideas, gets killed. And again, they're trying to like, you know, someone tries to frame it with him. Like, you know, yeah. it's because of his ideas and his yeah. crazy conspiracies. And it's because JFK was really killed by the Russian yeah. mafia or whatever. And then, you know, it's become, well, no, it was the boyfriend who was banging some yeah. he wasn't supposed to, whatever. Yeah. I guess just bring up, um, there was a part, one of the little parts that you mentioned that were nice yeah. little side parts. Columbo's sitting on the bench, uh, making up limericks. Oh, yes. I really enjoyed that. So I immediately looked up to see, is there an episode where yeah. Columbo does lyrics, uh, limericks? There is one called The Conspirators from 1978 where he composes three different limericks. Oh thought, my god. We gotta read one of them, right? Let's trade them off. You read one and then I'll Friends. read one. There once was an old man from Lyme who married three wives at a time. When asked why a third, he replied, one's absurd and two of them, sir, is a crime. <laughs> it's funny too because he doesn't finish the limerick in the book and I was like, I should look up if that's a real limerick, but then I forgot to. Yeah. Like, But it was fun. I sat there like filling in the blanks and trying to come up with like you know, there once was a man from Nantucket. When I was a kid, that was like the go-to sure. limerick that would get cut off and things. Mm -hmm. And I'd always be like, what the fuck could the next line be? Because I'm like eight and I don't know whose dick was so long he could suck it, <laughs> right? Like I couldn't guess that's what it was. Okay, Lieutenant Columbo. A rare old bird is the pelican. His bill holds more than his belly can. He can take in his beak enough food for a week. I'll be damned if I know how the hell he can. This one is top-notch. <laughs> I wish that had been in your Columbo impression. Those are good. I'm, anytime I'm watching my hometown, New Orleans. Not New Orleans isn't my hometown, but the Pelicans, I'm going to be saying this in my head. My parents had Anytime a somebody hits a crazy had. shot, I'll be like, I'll be damned to know how the hell he can. My parents had a book of limericks that yeah. was always around when I was a kid. I never bothered opening it or yeah. looking at it, but uh, my wife found it. Read the last one, just too. A few, just a yeah. few years ago, my wife yeah. found it. And of course, it's all completely right ball. You know, yeah. it's all about orifices and stuff. Yeah. And there's one about like there once was a man named Cribs. And yeah. so she went to my mom and was like, "Did you buy this because it had this mm -hmm. limerick in it?" My mom was scandalized. Yeah. She was like, "I didn't realize there once was a man named Cribs on all the fat chicks he would call dibs." I'm gonna have to find that one. It's pretty pretty great. There once was a fella named Finnegan who escaped from a jail so soon again. 
broke laws by the dozen, even stole from his cousin, so the jail he broke out of, he's in again. <laughs> and it should be said that also, this is how defiant of everything is. There is no form of bad dad humor than the limerick that I detest more. <laughs> that this is how much I've been brought around by Columbo. How much the power of Columbo is, I love it. Mysteries, police procedurals, and limericks. Yeah. They're all good now to me. My soul has been cleansed. So the big surprise of this book for me, and I think for both of us, was that like I went in thinking like, well, I'm curious to see how the Manson thing plays in this. Yeah. You know, maybe like, you know, see just how like it feels. Yeah. Brian Giddell feels. And now I'm like a legitimate Columbo fan. Like I love that he has, you know, he plays dumb with the suspects to throw them off, and he comes back in and says, oh, there's just one more thing I wanted to ask, you know. And I, I love these tactics, you know, and I could immediately see Peter Falk doing them as I was reading it. Yeah. Um, and so watching an episode... Oh, it's such know, a great you know. categorization of Falk, too. Harrington is great at describing Falk's mannerisms and Falk's manner in a way that really conjures him in a way that was fascinating to me not having watched the show. It's obviously a pop cultural icon, but you can picture Falk continuously in the writing in this. I think he really, one of the things I like about the book and I think has made me a Columbo fan without seeing an episode is how well Harrington conjures Falk's performances and mannerisms. Mm -hmm. It's great because when you watch the show, you see, you would, you would, if you didn't know he's Columbo, you could see why people would look at him the way they do because it seems like he doesn't seem incongruous with his environment. He just seems to be like hanging out and looking at something that no one else else is looking at. He looks tired, like he needs a cup of coffee. Yeah. He seems like the schlubbiest asshole you would not want anywhere near your crime scene. So it's just amazing how he takes advantage of like people's perception of him. It's yeah, this I actually there was a thing in it that I was like, oh remember that page number. Uh and because this is like a great I can just picture Peter Falk doing this so well. And you've been doing the impression, so I actually want you to keep going through it. It's when he goes to Kimberly Dana, who is um, uh, given him the, the the movies that Yusuf Curry has produced, and he's returning them to her while she's playing volleyball at the beach. And he uh, comes up and talks to her, right? Oh, my, Miss Dana. Mrs. Colombo asked me to add her thanks to mine. Three movies on one night. We stayed up late last night. Mrs. Colombo said to tell you she thinks Lingering Melody is one of the best pictures she ever saw. Me, I like the space shows better, but they were all fine. They were all fine. <laughs> Just that. And, and since I have the open book in front of me, I'm actually reading this in my Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Peter. Also, I'm sorry we got it long. I'm glad we got Lingering Melody collected, <laughs> though, which is somehow even worse than Lingering <laughs> That's Memory. Terrible. But I gotta do this real quick. As they reach for each other, that's ah, kissing again. You don't want to read. No, no, it, it's okay. You can, you can finish I this time. I don't mind it so much. I don't mind it so much. That's a great goddamn movie too. It is. Literally flawless, and it also has magic in it. So uh, if anyone ever disputes whether there's wizardry in it, there's there definitely is. there is unquestionably wizardry. Someone dies is brought back to life. It's sorcery, I say. Sorcery. There's the Holocaust cloak, which is invulnerable to fire and uh, is magic. Yeah. Period. Yeah, it's magic. Not a swashbuckler. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on from that controversial point. Um, but just that part in that dialogue you just yeah. read where he's like, They're, they were all fine. It's just like such a Peter Falk, like chewing on a line kind of thing. You can just see it when he's in his more serious movies. Yeah, where he's almost like trying to think of the next line. You know, yeah. Just kind of letting it kind of build. 
And it's funny too. You wonder like, why does Columbo want to watch the movies? Like, how yeah. could it possibly be relevant? Like, what's the tactic? Yeah. And part of it is like enjoying just like his. You know, I'm going to ask her to borrow her personal copies of these movies. Yeah. Even though she puts a little like, well, this is my personal copy. Oh, I'll return them right away. You know. Yeah. Like, it's just great to see him kind of set people off balance by these weird little requests that he uses. And it also, it's one of those tactics too there where he's talking about watching it with Mrs. Columbo and you get a sense of like his home life in this a lot and the sort of the unseen Mrs. Columbo who's, you know, balking at watching three fucking terrible movies in one (laughs) night. You know what I mean? And that kind of, it's a really, it's like a sweet picture of domestic bliss. She, She bowls, she's an expert bowler, she's taking accounting classes on Wednesday nights, you know, well, she's yeah. fallen asleep during the three movies. Well, something else I read afterwards yeah. after reading the book and reading more about Columbo is that people will debate, fans of the show debate, how much of it is bullshit that he's completely making up. And he said, my uncle had a piece of furniture just like this. And yeah. it's like, does he really have an uncle with that yeah. same piece of furniture? Because the guy's immediately like, really, that's 200 years old. Your uncle had one just like it. Like, yeah. He's just like making this shit up as he goes along. Yeah. So who even knows? How much of his, you know, again, not showing Mrs. Columbo or anything yeah. is all part of that. You know, he's just, Columbo's just yeah. throwing these things out there. He's definitely a chop buster, too, especially when he's yeah. with the younger cops, mm-hmm. like playing pool and such, stuff, where he's kind of always like, he's, it's everybody he's putting off balance, mm-hmm. too, in that way, that he sort of enjoys fucking with people is the fun of it, that he's not, it's not a serious detective work, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways, that, that, that there's an enjoyment to him, like, uh, clowning people, you know what I mean? And uh, sort of playing dumb. You know, people playing dumb is enjoyable. It makes the other characters more interesting. Like, all yeah. the nondescript cops who don't actually have anything to do with the investigation in Harry yeah. book are interesting. Yeah, like when he's... Yeah. He's interesting. Like, the young, at that beach volleyball scene, the young Latino cop who's there like assigned to to like keep people away from the beach volleyball game he's like the cop at a sporting event just that brief conversation he has with Columbo it's this really sharply etched little character and you're right it's all through what Columbo's saying to him and how Columbo as a character reveals that character that's a very throwaway nothing thing you mm-hmm. know I'll say two of the things that I uh, found interesting watching the show after reading the book were in the book, he's just so polite with everyone. Oh, you sir, you know, I just want to check this out. So we got to see everything. And he's yeah. very careful not to, to, or to back up and say, hey, I'm not accusing you of anything. Yeah. You know? Even though he's been doing nothing but accusing yeah. people. But the way he's fucking with people, like you yeah. were saying, in the show, there's a part where um, the guy, the, the murderer, um, really just like, it's become so obstinate that like Humble loses his shit at, yeah. at one point and really just like snaps at him. Yeah. And you kind of see, like, a reality to it where he's like, yeah. listen, asshole. Like, oh, yeah. shit. Like, Columbo's, yeah. like, dropped the video. Yeah. And now he's just going after this guy. Yeah. Like, this shit gets to him. So, like, even though he puts on this front of being polite and, and patient with people, he yeah. hates these fucking people. Like, he's yeah. really going after them. Yes. Um, the second thing that uh, hasn't come with the book, I'm curious how many episodes, the the big reveal at the end, or the big, uh, you know, confrontation. confrontation where he gets the, the his guy. And I really like that scene in this one. Yeah, yeah, he, it's not done, like, at the police station, it's not a formal thing, yeah. it's like, everybody sit down and I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna tell everyone how I know, like, in this, in the book, it's like on a movie set where they're like, 
everyone clear the set, we're gonna all sit down. Yeah, and it's a set of a police station. <laughs> it's a great detail. He has it's them funny, sit right? down, and the actors wander, come back from the break, and like are trying to figure out what's happening on their set, <laughs> like who these people are and if it's a movie or not. Yeah. It's wonderful. But a great scene where he's kind of both um, fucking with people and investigating is the when the uh, Kimberly Dana and Yusuf Curry for their tryst where they're claiming to be at the night of the murder is a kind of formerly glamorous hotel called the Piscina Linda where that's now named for its beautiful California pool that's now sort of like a sleazy hookup spot for rich people and there's a secondary character who's like a spoiled young girl who's never met Charles Manson who pretends to sort of be part of the Manson family who gets bailed out of prison. She's brought in because they're trying to put the heat on her and she gets bailed out of prison by her rich parents back from Greenwich, Connecticut. And because she's out of prison, the parents and the uh, defense lawyer ask him to come to dinner with them. And he picks the Piscina Linda to go to and uh, saying they got, they're supposed to have great food there, but he knows it's gonna be a terrible meal. It's a sleazy hookup spot, but he also wants to see the Piscina Linda and hang out there a little bit, right? Yeah. And it's a great example of like investigative, but also like fucking with this dumb defense detective and these spoiled rich assholes, you know? That's great. They remind me of seeing a camp place it, but a scene where somebody like, you know, is too involved in their work and yeah. the wife likes to, wants to do something. He's like, let's go to dinner. But then he takes you to dinner and it turns out like he's investigating or whatever. Like, yes. Work. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of what it is. But oh, my yeah. God. You just described what, yeah, there's an exact scene. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't think of it. I'll probably think of it five minutes after we're done recording. Yeah. Um, what else? What else? It reminded me a little of the scene, the, the tone of it, too. You do your marketing here? <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, what else? What else do we need to say about this book? I I enjoy. Look, if this would be a great like, this is great plain read. This is a great yeah. you know, if you need to kill some time, if you're sitting in a doctor's office, you know what I mean, waiting room. Like bring bring the helter skelter murders. Sports Illustrated. <laughs> yes, exactly. Columbo spinoff. Oh man, I, I you know one, the sure. detail I love in the movie is they're trying to make Kimberly Dana a star, right? Mm -hmm. And Joseph Curry's going to put her in a movie, and with the insurance money, he's going to be back on top and can put her in a movie and make her a star. It's a big part of their plan, and they're describing the movie they're going to make starring her, which is inspired by a true story of a playboy playmate who's on top of the world who gets paralyzed in an accident and has her work her way back to health, right? <laughs> Just the description of this terrible movie. It reminds me so much of Dorothy Stratton shit, oh, right? Okay, you know yeah. what I mean? It has that flavor of like this person just not being done right by Hollywood. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Are these kind of ludicrous plans rich men are coming up with to launch beautiful women in some yeah. ways? You know, it just has that sleazy exploitation feel. And I like the uh, the book is strangely sympathetic to her co-star in the movie who when Kimberly Dana goes to jail, Willa, she gets the lead role who's I, portrayed as a little bit of a, a Marilyn Monroe type who like affects a dumb blonde but then asks, it's like the only character uh, Columbo meets in the whole story who he seems impressed by because she asks him an incisive question about DNA and what's happening with <laughs> the development of DNA evidence when they're she like away from the, the group. She's the only one who's going to benefit from the murder. Yes, yes. She's the one who gets... And also in the epilogue there's a little bit about Kim becoming friends with Pastuga in prison years yes. later. Yes. Because Kim is, you know, not prepared for prison life and yeah. it's going to do her in post being a 
veteran yeah. of the, the, the yeah. justice system is able to takes her under her wing, take her under her wing and, and Kim- help her adjust. Yeah, and Kimberly Dan really nice. feels yeah, it is finds a little bit of happiness playing first base on the women's softball team in prison. Because that's another thing that kind of um, trips Columbo up in this is that plus do good is like prison for me is more natural than regular life. Yeah, and people are going to be trying to frame me for murder, I might as well just stay in prison because yeah. I do better in here than I do outside. So she might confess the crimes ultimately, which yeah. is like, ah, that would let the killers get away scot-free. You don't want to yeah. do that. So it's kind of this sort of adds a ticking clock element a little bit to the investigation. Yes. Did you, let me ask you a question. Did it shock you that there are lots of instances of words like shit and fuck in this book? That they, I, I, I didn't realize it, honestly. Yeah. To me, and there's like lengthy descriptions. It's like 94, and there's like a lingerie fashion show clearly inspired by what was happening with Victoria's Secret at the time when that was like exploding. And like by pre-internet days, the Victoria's Secret catalog was like, came to prominence as being like world-class jerk-off material, right? And so there's clearly this element of that to this, that he's not exactly a pornographer, but he's making... Victoria's Secret style jerk off material that's very thinly disguised as being advertising for the Curry collection of lingerie. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised by how like much talk there is like about it doesn't exactly go to like the wispy mounds. You know what I mean? But there's like talk about like nipples and butts and stuff in it in a way that's like Yeah, that's like I don't want to get a boner around this book. What are you trying to do? Get this out of my fit. What are you trying to do? Get this away from me. You know? And I was surprised that it doesn't Yeah, that this would be this would be a PG thirteen verging on R rated book. You know what I mean? Movie, if you were to make this into a movie. Yeah. With the murder scene, it'd probably get to R, you know? And I was sort of surprised by that, assuming Columbo to be like a fairly gentle TV show, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it always surprises me, all these shows, uh, like this and Murder, She Wrote, yeah. that when the murders are so gruesome, yeah. you think like, wow, this is like a TV show. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> like you're, when you're used to just like, you know, innocuous sitcoms and things like that. Yeah. Even like, you know, a gentle show like Murder, She Wrote is like, yeah. God, that's a grisly, heartless crime that, you know, yeah. that she's trying to solve. And like, and she's in constant danger of being killer herself. Yes. Yeah. That is, but that's one of the things I love about that show. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's my perception. I guess, are we going to watch Matlock and it's about like gang rape? <laughs> is that what we're going to find out? Because I've never seen Matlock. It should be for the record, John and I are both huge Murder, She Wrote fans. I know what it just sounds is sarcastic, but my dream job would have been writing for Murder, She Wrote. I don't Jamie think there would have been... all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I um, wish there was a Columbo uh, spinoff with uh, Jamie Fletcher and I think Team Up. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. But they're both such forces of nature. They both need their own spotlight. They it's true. They need their own spotlight yeah, in that fanfic. way. Yeah. Although this book, it's too... It's funny, this book reads like fanfic in some ways because it's just so like it's so perfectly columbo-ish based on my like pop cultural perception of columbo like if you want the columbo greatest hits it hits those notes like if you haven't seen the show and you're familiar with columbo he does the columbo shit yeah you know what i mean and and it does almost have a fan fiction type like it's for the fans this book yeah but i appreciate that it's a columbo fanfic and not a true crime charlie yeah. manson you know, fanfic like we were expecting look at this cover it. look how charming this is peter falk with his hand smushing his nose up against his face he looks so sleepy yeah 
It's enjoyable, this tasteful painting of we're cool. 150 Cello Drive. We're, cool. we're Colombo fans now. Cello Drive. We are. Are you going to read the Grassy Knoll? I don't know. If it were left in your mailbox, would you read if, it? If I sat down in a doctor's office and Grassy Knoll were there, I would be praying that I'm in that waiting room for an hour and a half. <laughs> if Wouldn't... I saw it in a used bookstore for 25 cents, definitely. No question. No question. Yeah. If this is it. You mentioned that we both ordered copies of this and we both got hardcover. Yes, I think this was only in hardcover. I looked for a paperback. I'm pretty sure myself is going to be of like a thousand hardcover Columbo books. Um, very enjoyable. I might look at William Harrington does other things. I might give a William another off Columbo William Harrington book yeah, a shot. Yeah, he's definitely got He's like, isn't he like a follow, former lawyer or something? We haven't talked much about him. There's a bio in the back. Didn't do, didn't do right my hair. He's a formal criminal lawyer who lives in Connecticut. What more do you need to know? Look at him. He, he looks like uh, a guy who's a sound editor. Is how I would describe him. The exact opposite of Curtis Harrington. Yes. Gruff Santa Claus-ish type. Blue-collar Santa Claus is how I'm going to describe William Harrington. The great William Harrington. <laughs> I'm almost willing to call him the great William Harrington, although I have it's a feeling that the great Peter Falk is actually what I want to call something. So are you ready to move on to our dessert pairing? We pair all of our these films with an aperitif and a dessert. Would you like to move on to yes. it? You want to go so first or you want to have me do it? Let me go first. Since you Good. For this this is uh, came, this one came last minute, actually. We were just having a conversation, and I, it popped in my head. Multiple Maniacs. Oh, Waters. yes. If you, want to, if you went to this book expecting some gross, tasteless incorporation <laughs> of the Tate LaBianca murders and were disappointed, go see Multiple Maniacs because anyone who's a fan of John Waters knows that he's had a long association with that case, that he went to the trials, um, that he's been obsessed and interested with it, that he has befriended um, Leslie Van Houten and, yeah, and he, has been an advocate for her release from Charles prison Watson for a while even would visit him in prison so he knows a lot about this stuff and back when he was a young Hellcat his second film, feature film uh, Multiple Maniacs he decided he wrote the script because at that point the Tate LaBianca murders had not been solved he decided that Divine's character was the killer and that that was going to be revealed in the movie so that when the movie came out People would literally think that, like, Divine had killed Sharon Tate and her friends and everything. And then, when they found out while making the movie that they, you know, arrested all these kids and that they were the ones who did it, they made it a plot that at the end of the movie, Divine will have uh, con uh, convinced David Lockery that while he was on drugs, he went and murdered all these people, and that he'll find out, what? They arrested all these other people? You lied to me! And then he's going to freak out on her, so it actually becomes a fantastic joke yeah. inside the movie itself, and not just this kind of exploitation <laughs> that John Waters had in mind, um, but it actually becomes a really funny gag at the end of the movie, right before Divine is raped by a giant lobster. Yeah. It's my favorite of John Waters' movies. Oh, absolutely. It's great. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoy that one a lot. And I'm not, you know, I love John Waters as an institution. I'm not necessarily somebody who's going to tell you, give, give a, you know, Cecil B. Demented another chance. Yeah, yeah. Give that one another. That won't be coming from me. <laughs> um, that's a good one. My choice is Thou Shalt Not Kill, dot, 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 except... Which is, I don't know how to describe it. It's a movie about a Vietnam veteran coming back from the war and essentially gets into a fight 
with the Manson family-like clan, a surrogate, Manson surrogates. I think this movie comes out in 84 or 85, and uh, it's like... um, It's a little later than that, I think. It's 85. It's 85. Yeah, I'm just looking it up. And it's produced by Scott Spiegel. It has Bruce Campbell in it. It's like very... And Sheldon Lettich, writer of Kickboxer. Um, But it's very like Sam Raimi, or not, not Kickboxer, Bloodsport, he wrote. And Lionheart and Double Impact. Sorry. he I picked the one he didn't write off the top of my head when I was trying to think about this. But um, And Scott Spiegel produced it, who's also a longtime Raimi associate, who wrote uh, Evil Dead 2. Scott Spiegel also later in his career, it should be noted, became an Eli Roth and Tarantino associate. So oh. if you're looking for, as always, the shit that Tarantino ripped off to get his ideas, he's unquestionably aware of this movie and has seen it. And, you know, we've avoided saying the name of the fucking Tarantino movie because he doesn't need our press. But, like, if you are interested in that and you, again, are one of those people who didn't hear of Lady Snowblood before Kill Bill, now you can go back and start discovering all these weird other movies. And it's extremely tasteless. It's goofy. It has that sort of evil deadish to sense of gore humor to it. It's, it's almost like trauma-ish in tone, but like competent trauma, mm-hmm. you know? I like that we both went with. <laughs> if you were disappointed by how tasteful this book was, yes. there are plenty of places you can go. It seems like it's a recent thing too in horror films, uh, the kind of exploitation of the, the, the cult, you know. Yeah, like, you know, and and sorry, I meant I forgot to mention the most part. I was leading up to it's all these Sam Raimi associates. Sam Raimi plays the Manson character right. in that movie, <laughs> right. so that's an important part of it too. But. Uh, but like T West, Ty West, however you say his name, did that yeah. recent movie that like is a fictionalization of like the Jonestown massacre. Yeah, it's like just feels so gross, you know. Yeah, so just take a real life thing. I don't even like like where they uncomfortably like wink, wink, like at a real life thing, like Arlington Road, yeah, Ruby Red Massacre, uh, Ruby Ridge, Ridge Massacre, yeah. things like that. It's like, ugh, like I don't even like when they. Yeah, yeah. when they do the, like, surrogate. I don't even like when they do, like, the surrogate David Koresh and that kind of thing. It always Mm -hmm. feels a little tasteless, although at the same time, I'm incredibly interested in tasteless art. And that's what, again, I think it also writes it back to what I was talking about true crime at the beginning, is I feel like there's something that unseemly that happens when something that I'm like, I am interested in this stuff because it's tasteless becomes thousands upon thousands of people being like, I'm interested in this too. And I may be aware that it's tasteless or not. I may be, uh, have, maybe I'm just like you, Chris, and I know have as much self-awareness as everybody about the tastelessness of it. It's one of those things that feels very hypocritical to me where I'm like, don't watch that stuff except for the weird, hilarious Raimi one. You know what I mean? Like a little bit that I, I'm allowed to love it, but you aren't. You know, I think there is a bit of hypocrisy to me and all that stuff as well, you know. Uh, but it's, you know, I'm interested in the art that skirts the line in that well, way. Yes. Although this book is definitely not that. No, no. You can watch it with a clean much. conscience yeah. unless you are offended by the idea of fake Victoria's Secret catalogs. <laughs> well, I'll have to take a shower after it. But let me yeah. ask you, as a prediction, once upon a time in Hollywood, with Tarantino's, I guess, trademark thing now of ignoring what actually yeah. happened, do you think Bruce Lee will break in and save Sharon Tate from... No, I no, I think the stuntman is like going to beat him up and take a shit in his mouth and then like get a high five from Bruce Lee. No, what do I think? I th- No, I don't... 
I know that there's going to be some liberty taken with history. There's going to be some total obliviousness to historical fact that uh, may or may not be intentional, that everybody will argue is intentional, but just seems like total lack of familiarity with world history, you know, um, a sort of like idiot savant's understanding of what happened in both, you know, mm-hmm. frontier times, you know, pre-Civil War era, World War Two, like somebody who like... What years the Civil War actually took? Oh my God. <laughs> Any number of things that are like, I guess you can argue it doesn't matter. Because he said it was a fairy tale. He put once upon a time in it. Therefore, mm-hmm. nothing matters. Um, uh, it's a healthy attitude. It is. What I do think is going to happen is that Bruce Lee's stuntman is going to mix it up with, uh, or Brad Pitt's stuntman is going to mix it up with Bruce Lee to a draw. That's what I think is going to happen in that scene. Um, well, there are a lot of smash scenes in that scene. Um, who the hell knows? <laughs> who the hell knows? Um, Tell us what we're doing next, Chris. What are we doing next? We're doing the uh, Irugato Rampo stories, right? That's right, short stories. Yes, John and I, this is a nice change-up next week because we love short stories and feel like both short stories and short films, we don't get uh, to talk about them enough. And so we are each picking a handful of short stories by an author we like, the Japanese author. And he's going to pick three or four. I'm going to pick three or four. We're both going to read each other's the stories if we haven't read them. And then we're going to talk about a handful of uh, Itagato Rampo stories. Which is great. He is phenomenal. He is phenomenal. Phenomenally weird. Yeah. Uh, beyond the border of tastelessness frequently, too, in a way that I like. So, you know, I'll be... Killing my high horse next month. Yeah, that's just, that just we'll just say you know uh, if you've never read anything by him by Rampo, we highly recommend just go out and read anything that's available and sure yeah. you get your hands on. And um, they're they're good. Be digging into them. Genuinely weird, and I don't say that. I think a lot of stuff that nowadays, especially, you get told things are weird or batshit or crazy, mm-hmm. and it's like one kind of strange scene in an incredibly boring movie. You know what I mean? One mildly weird thing in like a short story that's not that great or a novel. This shit is genuinely weird. And I say that without compunction. Um, yes, I can uh, Anything else? Do we know what movie we're doing for August yet for the podcast? Do you want to talk about what comes out in August? Slam Dunk Ernest. Done. <laughs> Done. Pinksmoke.com. Have a great night, everyone.